Welcome to Energy Crossroads, where we talk Texas clean energy. We're on a mission to learn more about how clean energy impacts a wide variety of industries. We will explore conversations with industry leaders around clean energy trends and related technology, finance, the built environment, and policy opportunities impacting your organization. This podcast is powered by HARC, a research hub providing independent analysis on energy, air, and water issues to help people seeking scientific answers and is underwritten by the State Energy Conservation Office and our sponsor, the Mitchell Foundation. Thanks for tuning in for this podcast where we speak to solution providers, finance experts, and end users about clean energy investment practices and financing tools. I'm your host, Gavin Dillingham, and I'm joined today by our co-host, Marina Bedouin-Criticos. Hey, Gavin. Great to be here with you. I am super excited um, about the conversation we're going to have today. There's so much going on in the clean energy space right now. Um, at the national level, you know, we're seeing ambitious and comprehensive climate movement and across Texas, market forces really are continuing to move clean and green solutions forward. Uh, as we see this shift to transform the economy, you know, a push to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and really opportunities to build a green jobs infrastructure, there's so many pathways forward. I, I can't wait to chat with you and our guests about all of this today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it as well. So let's get started. We're excited to have today Dr. Arian Beck. Arian is a research fellow in the Energy Systems Transformation Research Group at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. She spent nearly two decades studying novel and innovative technologies ranging from devices to smart grids and currently through a policy and innovation diffusion lens, which I'm very excited to talk diffusion because that's what I did with my dissertation was policy diffusion. So it's always exciting to talk more policy diffusion. So we're excited to have Arian today talk with us about a more recent entry into the clean energy markets in Texas, Community Solar. Uh, welcome, Arian. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here today. Absolutely. Arian, it's such a pleasure to have you with us and to chat with you today. Uh, Gavin and I got really jazzed uh, about the paper that you and your colleagues at UT recently published focusing on scaling community solar in Texas. Uh, community solar programs, you know, are taking hold in the market here, but as we've seen, they're not quite mainstream. So we're delighted to have this opportunity to share a little bit more information. We're seeing that they seem to provide an interesting opportunity to really help support the clean energy transition, particularly in underserved markets, which I hope we'll be able to talk about a little bit later in the program. Um, but first, let's start with a little bit of background. You know, how did you get into the clean energy research space? Um, well, I actually started off um, in, at, at UT. I did my undergraduate and graduate work there and studied semiconductors and photonics. And, um, you know, it's funny, after graduation, I realized I loved what I studied, but the jobs were not exactly what I was looking to do with my life. And I really wanted to work more on, on clean energy. Um, at the time, it was pretty difficult to move into the, uh, the solar PV space. As a, as a semiconductor device engineer, especially if you don't want to move to California. So um, uh, after that, I kind of became the assistant department chair at the electrical and computer engineering department at UT and got exposure to a lot of technologies because instead of you know just my field of study, I was looking at what all the faculty were doing and I was really looking for, you know, what's that next thing I can do that technology, very, very technology focused to, you know, to help with climate change. And really came to the conclusion that short of battery storage, which is definitely not my area, we really had most of the technology we needed and we just weren't using it. And I started looking a lot more at the human dimensions of the technical systems we have and realizing that, 
you know, a lot of what's going on isn't, isn't that we need more tech or, you know, gosh, gee, we just need this one invention. It's as we, re we really need to start using what we have and using it better. And um, so from there, I, I transitioned as a project manager at Pecan Street, looking at the smart grid demonstrations uh, that they were doing. And, and then from there, um, got a position working on DOE grants in the SEEDS program, which is Solar Energy Evolution and Diffusion Studies. And, um, and, and working with Varun Rai, Professor Varun Rai at the LBJ School, who's now director of the Energy Institute at UT. Um, so it's kind of a winding path, but got into to really looking at how does information flow in the clean energy space and how do people make decisions about clean energy. And um, from there, we trans transitioned into a, a second seeds program looking at solar soft costs and, and then got this funding from the Mitchell Foundation, the Meadows Foundation to look at community solar. And, um, and that's how we came to do this, this report on scaling community solar that uh, we actually did. Our research partner in that is Professor Gabe Chan at the University of Minnesota. And he's also a, an incredible wealth of knowledge on community solar. I think that is a great example of do what you love and the work will come. Um, I think so many folks don't realize that it's not always a straight line from point A to point B, but really it's that journey and that path in between that just brings so much um, to all of these positions and learning and information sharing opportunities as we move forward. So that's pretty neat. Absolutely. And I think always just keeping eyes open for opportunities is the, is the big key for anything. Agree. So your focus really with this most recent paper was on community solar. Uh, as we know, it's you know a more recent innovation in the clean energy space that some of our listeners might not be too familiar with. So can you maybe start off with an explanation of the community solar model, uh, who the community is, how it works, and what are the benefits? So um, there isn't just one model and it can be so many different things and so many different things are referred to as community solar. And in our report, we decided to set out a definition of, of what we were talking about. And the definition we came to was, um, and I'm gonna read it directly here. Community solar is a solar installation with multiple off-takers referred to as subscribers who enter into a contractual relationship with the owner or operator of the installation uh, to receive some or all of the financial returns from a predefined share of the installation's output. Um, which is a very wordy way of, of, of really saying that the ownership and direct benefits should come to the community, um, should accrue to the community. And we like to see the community solar being in proximity to the community. And, you know, a lot of times what you'll see is, is green choice type models or, uh, or, or green pricing programs where people do utility scales, you know, somewhere else. And then they kind of, you know, just, just sell electricity, but they kind of say, oh, we'll, we'll give you this price. Um, and, and we're not really putting that into community solar. What we're saying here is there's a, there's a physical installation in proximity, geographic proximity to the community and, you're kind of directly off taking from that installation. You kind of own a part of it. Um, and that ownership is, is a big part to us of what the community part of community solar means. And as far as models go, there are a lot of different models. There are a lot of different um, subscription type models. And you know, in Texas, most of the projects are what's called pay as you go, where you get kind of a rate per kilowatt or a monthly rate. There are also things like pay up front or loan lease type programs. Texas always gets a little confusing because, you know, we have munis, we have co-ops, and then we have the retail choice area. And what models work changes quite a bit and what the rules are changes um, as you kind of move from market to market. 
but what we really see as a big part of community solar is that there's that ownership opportunity um, for the ratepayers and for the members of the community. What are some of the reasons that people are looking into community solar now? I mean, it's, it's great to see that there's funding coming in here to kind of support these types of studies, and which indicates that this is something that's becoming a potential opportunity there. So why are people looking at community solar now in Texas as far as, you know, in regards to maybe looking at more rooftop or utility scale such? You know, Isidri, most of the growth really is in in utility scale, and then and then kind of second is is the residential rooftop market. Um, I think the reason that we're seeing a lot of, of interest in community solar is if people started looking at who is taking advantage of the rooftop solar programs, and we've done a lot of analysis, looking at decisions and looking at diffusion. We kind of ask who's buying solar, and what we're seeing is it tends to be about the top twenty percent of income earners. Initially, it was people making over two hundred thousand a year. It kind of moved a little bit with third party ownership down to one hundred and fifty thousand a year, and and so what we really start to see is that all of the ratepayers are kind of paying for the solar programs, but there's a much smaller percentage of people who are really able to take advantage of, of rooftop solar. And so this question of equity in these programs has, has started to become a real question. Now, you know, if you study diffusion of innovation, you know, the idea behind, you know, innovators and early adopters um, tend to be, you know, those, those are the first people who buy a technology and they're very essential to the diffusion process in terms of they can absorb more risk. Um, They tend to have better information. And so, um, they're able to kind of invest in that technology early and help bring it to scale and that brings down the price for everybody. And, and that's happened a lot. A lot of the price has come down. And so I think we've now just kind of naturally gotten to a spot where, you know, we feel like, okay, what's, you know, what's next? How do we continue to move this kind of down market in terms of the income, um, household income? And, and how do we make this more accessible to more people? And, you know, when they look at, at, you know, older homes or, or less expensive homes, it becomes very difficult to, to put a rooftop installation on there. Um, you know, because the roofs are older, there's a lot of tree cover in older neighborhoods where the older homes are. Um, and, and so you have to ask, well, well how, <laughs> how do we start to open up the market to more people? And, and that's where community solar comes in, I think. And, and, you know, you have utility scale, but that's, you know, often uh, it's not going to be in proximity to load. And, and you don't get those advantages of distributed energy, um, you know, and, and land use. And sometimes you're using green fields out, out in, you know, kind of pristine areas. And so there, I think a lot of people are interested in how do we make better use of kind of land and resources uh, closer to, you know, closer to where the load is. Right. And just speaking of green fields versus the deployment of community solar, are you seeing community solar being considered? Is it kind of brownfield type redevelopment or what's, what's kind of that? Um, that's one of the kind of best examples we see is that, you know, the Sunnyside project in Houston, which is looking at putting solar over a, a former um, landfill. Mm-hmm. It's a great use of, of you know, a former landfill. It's, it's not stable enough to build on. And uh, so that's a really good, that's a really great project. And then sometimes, yeah, you, you'll, you'll see it on um, just kind of former industrial sites, things like that. Sometimes, you know, close to town or slightly outside of town or, or in industrial areas where you're not, you know, you're not going to have residential construction. Mm-hmm. Sure. But sometimes it can also just be a rooftop or a really large parking lot. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, massive because it's not utility scale. It's, it's that kind of in-between space. Right. And w- speaking of that space size, what, what does that size typically look like in Texas that you've seen as far as community solar? 
So yeah, the, the typical size in Texas is, is going to kind of run from a megawatt all the way up to, you know, 10, 15 megawatts typically. Um, and we've even seen some that are, that are aggregated. Um, PEC did a really neat project where they aggregated a number of one megawatt or just under one megawatt arrays. And being under one megawatt is a cutoff for some of the ERCOT regulations. So that helped them keep those costs down. But then because they were building 15 of them at the same time, they were also able to get the economies of scale from, from building a larger array. So that was a really neat project. And uh, we were really excited to see that one. But yeah, a lot of them, you know, right around five, five megawatts, 10 megawatts. Uh, but they can be as small as 200 kilowatts. We've seen that too. Yeah, that's, that's actually larger than I was thinking they would be. I was thinking closer to one to two megawatts. So it's interesting to see they go up to 10. One of the things that we're interested in is really these collaborations between you know industry, non-industry, oftentimes governmental entities. Sometimes they don't have a lot of expertise in this sector. So I know in your paper, you talked a little bit about some of the different functions that were necessary for community solar projects to be successful. Um, and some of the support that's required to really keep that ecosystem together um, and really make it work, you know, in a functional manner. Can you talk through maybe some of the pieces and the importance to the deployment of community solar? Yeah, so uh, I think we landed on about 18 functions total that we consider to be, you know, super critical to community solar. And those span from what we call project level up to the ecosystem level. And project level will be something like managing subscribers, which, you know, you're doing for, for, for just one project, to things like policy making or advocating, which are, you know, activities that would impact the, you know, every, every project. And that's kind of what we're calling the ecosystem. In our roadmap, we identified six that we thought were particularly high barriers for Texas. And, and those were policy making, legitimating, siting, project scoping, and then acquiring and managing subscribers. And, and what we kind of did here is we, we looked at some national case studies of, you know, community solar, and we're kind of surprised to find out that, that a lot of the actors that were involved in the projects were, were not, you know, they were community-based organizations. They weren't necessarily energy organizations or kind of the typical actors that you would expect. And so we looked at Texas and we said, well, you know, what's the potential for, for do, you know, for having this kind of involvement in Texas. And because we don't have a lot of projects going, we kind of had to take a more, um, you know, kind of a readiness approach. And we said, so, so if, if the organization, like this community-based organization is um, already performing that function and say like in a, in a different area, it, but, but performing that function in the community, would they be ready to perform that function in, in the context of community solar? Um, and, and that was a lot of how we kind of came to look at how community organizations could start to play a role in solar through these, through providing these functions. And so, you know, solar installers are going to do a lot of the functions, things like, like project scoping and, you know, design. But then you have things like siting that they get a little more tricky where things like churches or organizations, um, you know, housing organizations, for instance, might have access to uh, you know, land or rooftops that, that can really play a role. Um, acquiring and, and, and managing subscribers is another one where anybody who has a strong role in the community, who has an audience and a constituency that can benefit from solar, um, can really help with, with that aspect. And, and acquiring subscribers always ends up being one of, one of the very expensive kind of soft costs and managing any one of these projects. I'm just growing more and more intrigued by just the development of, of community solar across the state. But I'm just curious, you know, how, how do you kind of see the, the market continue to grow in Texas? And, 
and both the you know the regulated and the deregulated market it seems like it could be a little more dicey in the deregulated market where you just have a little bit more complexity potentially how do we kind of start moving things forward a little faster you think in texas yeah, the different markets are, you know, definitely an, an interesting, they're almost separate studies um, when you start doing the research. And, you know, most of the projects that we have right now are done by munis and, and a few co-ops and, you know, Austin Energy, in terms of capacity, Austin Energy and CPS in, in San Antonio have really been innovative and, and out front in, in doing community solar. But we see, you know, what is, I think, 75% of ratepayers in ERCOT are in the deregulated market. And, and so we started kind of digging into that in terms of the, you know, the research was because we thought, oh, gosh, you know, 75%, we, <laughs> we really need to find a solution for that you know, large piece of the market. We started kind of interviewing some, some reps and developers and trying to figure out what was going on in, in terms of why we weren't seeing so much activity. And, you know, really what we find with, you know, with reps is, you know, there's a lot of risk associated with new products and the marketing and the education that's needed for the customers is, is challenging. It, it can be difficult in that marketing to differentiate between the green pricing programs and community solar, the long-term offtake agreements that, that are often required or, you know, part of these solar projects are, are not something that they're looking for, especially when they have high turnover with their customers. We also found that, you know, the consumers are very price sensitive. They're kind of taught to, to shop on, on price and find the lowest price. And a lot of the community solar in Texas has actually been at a slight price premium, you know, one or two cents per kilowatt hour. And, um, and the other thing we found were that the reps really can't capture or monetize some of the grid benefits like, you know, 4CP uh, type benefits. And so, so they do end up with uh, missing out on a lot of the aspects that the, that the munis and the co-ops um, can capture. And so that's, you know, that's going to continue to be an issue. We really have to, I think, find ways to get the education out there um, and, and get consumers engaged and interested and kind of demanding new products in the deregulated areas if we're going to see more of that happening. Right. And why do you think there's that, that premium there? Is that just because it's kind of, it's novel, it's, it's just seen as an opportunity to potentially, you know, people are just more willing to pay a little bit for renewables and anticipate that they would have to anyway? What did, what did you kind of see in that regard as far as that premium, well, essentially? that has to do with the, the economies of scale. You know, utility scale is cheaper than than distributed generation, and it's it is easier to just find a big piece of land. You know, one person with a ranch out in West Texas that you can plop a lot of solar, than to try to find little areas that are closer to you know to the communities. That's definitely just going to continue to be a bit of a challenge, and something that we see with solar and that we see with value of solar pricing is that some of the value to solar is non monetary and. You know, when you, especially when you're working in the deregulated market, you're only considering the monetary aspects. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to balance. Arian, kind of continuing that line of thought where you're talking about really the need for education for really all the players in this market to let folks know, first of all, that this model exists, and then also to let industry folks know that there is this really feasible way to get the energy and then for all parties to really understand the effectiveness, the reliability of this. So how can we really work to overcome some of this information gaps that are out there and look to uh, improving energy equity and really getting some pathways made a little bit more clear 
for affordable clean energy to get to all markets, but specifically underserved markets through community solar programs? I, you know, I think in, in some sense, this is a million dollar question. Um, you know, information, you know, in, in the academic research, we often talk about information asymmetry, and it's, it's constantly a challenge that to get all the information out, you know, to, to, to everybody. Um, I think one of the reasons that, that we started focusing on this report on community-based organizations is because they already have information channels uh, to the community. And it's, it's perhaps more tractable for you know, energy utilities to be able to reach out to a few community leaders and then rely on those community leaders to kind of get the message out and get the information out. Um, you know, when you're talking about equity, when you're talking about underserved communities, um, you're often talking about issues of trust. And, you know, they don't necessarily trust the information that's coming from a solar installer or from a utility. Um, but, but, you know, and that's, that's another place where the community-based organizations can really play a role when they already have established trust is they can be that filter um, that can help take that information to, to people that have been hard to, you know, hard to reach and, and hard to communicate with. Um, you know, I think the other thing about working with community-based organizations is that you have the opportunity to um, work with the community. Um, and, and this is something that, that I think a lot of infrastructure, uh, not just energy infrastructure kind of struggle with. Um, but the more that you engage a community upfront and in the decision-making processes and explain the benefits, explain the costs and make sure that they're partners and sharing the benefits um, of, of that new infrastructure, uh, the more support that you can get and the more buy-in that you can get from the community. And then you become partners um, in, in that project. And I think that's really, you know, what we need to move towards um, if we're going to, if we're really going to scale up community solar in Texas. It can't, uh, you can't just go in and, and kind of slap up solar panels and, and expect that everybody's going to be like, oh, okay, you know, this, this, these are people's communities and they're going to be seeing this near their homes um, and, and they're going to want to be um, involved in it and, and engaged. And, and with that will come education, um, with that will come more capacity within the community for, for further action and further development of, of projects. Um, so I think that's a, you know, that's a key part of, of it. But, um, you know, in, in our research, we've talked to a lot of installers and they often say, like rooftop installers for residential, they often say that they almost consider it a public service when they make the first contact with a customer because they're going to be doing all the educating the decision period, you know, what we call it, how long it takes for people to go from learning about solar to installing it can be, you know, six months to nine months. And they don't know which installer is going to be called when they're ready to make the, the decision on solar. So it ends up being very expensive for um, installers to go around educating everyone. I always think of like the got milk commercials and wish that we had like a, a solar council that was equivalent to kind of the dairy council and creating that kind of commercial. Um, to just drive people's interest in, in wanting to, to in, in, in install solar. Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, the, the marketing is not that um, cohesive. <laughs> um, we haven't kind of found a way to centralize it and get a large message, you know, and a huge marketing push out there um, for solar. And I, I wish we could, because that education component and that information component is, uh, is going to be a big part of it. I love that visual area and that kind of got solar. It's going to be in my head for the rest of the day. It seems as though there's a great opportunity here for some of the organizations and associations that are related to the industry to really create some more 
collaboration that would really benefit uh, the broader good, both for the industry as well as the homeowners and the kind of burgeoning green jobs network that we're seeing move forward. Have you seen anything as far as movement in this space to help create that type of organization or does it still seem to be one, because the state's so big and then two, because there's just so many organizations working at this space. We haven't reached the point where there's that kind of cohesiveness yet. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are organizations, I think they tend to work more on behalf of installers and, you know, policy advocacy. I, I don't know that I've seen as much in terms of information campaigns directly to ratepayers to, you know, citizens who are, who are going to be making the decision about solar. And I feel like that's very common for kind of the energy, it kind of happens behind the scenes. It, it doesn't really, as an energy consumer, right, you just kind of take for, take it for granted. You flip the switch on the wall, the electrons are there. You're, not, you're just not very engaged with your energy system and you don't think about it. I feel like most of the information campaign and most of the information organizations are probably focused more on, on installers and policy advocacy um, than they are on, on direct to consumer information. Kind of going, kind of shifting around a bit here. I I had a question just on more on the regulatory side of things, as far as some of the barriers that you're seeing in that regard. And I guess, you know, when you kind of go to the diffusion of of policies and regulations across the country, and even probably largely across states and such, what do you see as far as maybe, you know, what's kind of working and maybe what Texas needs to be thinking about or could be introduced in Texas that could potentially help the market uh, move things along? You know, one of the big things I think is, is having more transparency in the upfront costs. Uh, something that we've come across quite a few times <laughs> with, uh, you know, talking to installers and, and developers about these, these various projects, uh, particularly at the, dis- at the distributed um, kind of community uh, solar scale is that they get a project started, get everything going, and then they find out that it, the interconnection costs are going to require distribution feeder upgrades. And this is something we find out that, you know, at the utility scale, you're on the transmission grid, and those upgrades are kind of socialized across the whole grid. This whatever costs an upgrade, and then it goes out to all the rate payers, you know, who, who are paying in, uh, those transmission fees. But on the distribution grid, if someone beats you to interconnection, and, and you coming on requires an upgrade, you're the one who gets hit with the big fees. And, and that upgrade fee can kill a project. And you might not know about it until after you're, you're well into the course of developing the project. And you know, so what you've just done is, is really driven up these, these soft costs because you, know, you have this, this, all this development and all this energy and all this time. And, and then it falls apart at the last minute. If that developer is gonna stay in business, the next project is gonna to have to pick that up somehow. Some states have moved towards what they call hosting capacity maps, uh, where the utilities have to figure out where they have capacity available for, for interconnection. Um, I don't know that, that Texas is going to move towards that in, anytime soon, but I think we really need to look at ways that we can upgrade the grid without penalizing solar installers. Because really what's happening is they're cleaning up our air and creating thousands of jobs, and, and we're not really supporting them um, by providing this kind of transparency in, in the interconnection costs. And, and it's really messing with the financing for these projects. It's actually more of a common theme that we're seeing as we have these discussions around the, the, around the soft cost component. And there's so much discussion about how solar continues to reduce in cost, which it does, especially on the hardware and technology side, but it's those ongoing soft costs. If it's customer acquisition, where you're that risk of that you know, solar developer that goes out and does the education that may or may not get that customer to these 
permitting and, and interconnection costs. And we saw that with our, our discussion on solar around the permitting side of things, so just that uncertainty around permitting and how long it's going to take and what, you know, what drawings do you need and what's, what's all the different components that need to come into that. It's interesting to kind of continue to see that ongoing soft cost discussion. And I know that's been a big push out of Department of Energy, out of the Solar Energy Technology Office, which you mentioned you were kind of a, a part of earlier on in their to kind of diffusion literature and research there. So glad you brought up the permitting because that would be kind of the other big thing I would say is the permitting and interconnection policies. We really need unification around those. And, you know, given the diversity of Texas markets and the geography, you know, I, I don't know that statewide policy would work well for that, but regional coordination um, is something I think we, you know, we, we really should push for. And, and that would allow installers to operate over larger areas um, without having to learn, you know, a whole new process. Um, in one of our projects, you know, we went out to, you know, some of the smaller cities around Texas and did some surveying and people said, well, there are no solar installers in my community. And we kind of realized, you know, they weren't that far from Austin, but they were far enough that an installer wasn't going to drive all the way out there and figure out a whole new PII process just to serve one customer. And if we had the same kind of regional PII policies, it would be a lot easier for that installer to be able to serve kind of one-off uh, customers in smaller towns and things like that. And, and certainly that gets into the equity question as well of, you know, how do we, how do we serve more people? And, and part of that is make it easier for the installers to provide their services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we actually, not to promote HARC too much, um, but we, we actually came out with a tool recently that allows at least people to start figuring out where those solar installers are and what their geography looks like and kind of a whole solar development tool. It's not related to community solar, but more just to um, solar development in general, because you're absolutely right. There's just so many questions that consumers have as far as who do I talk to, who does this in my region? And then of course, then goes in all to the incentives and rebates that are available and, you know, and just better understanding that, that fit that uh, someone would have uh, for solar there. So with community solar, there seems to be some great models being developed, especially in the regulated market. And one of the ones in, um, in San Antonio, Go Smart Solar seems to really be making some big inroads with some of the community solar they're doing on doing. And I know they've been doing some of the more recent stuff, and this may or may not be classified community solar, is a lot of uh, focus on parking lots and uh, parking coverage and using solar on those. Do you have a take on this kind of the model that Go Smart Solar is using and how that may be able to be kind of um, utilized uh, more widely? Yeah, I know a, a little bit about that and, and have talked to some of those folks. And one of the things I really love about that design is that they're, they're also um, bringing in revenue from the covered parking itself. And so they're able to offset some of the cost of the solar by this kind of dual use or co-benefits of what the solar installation can provide. Um, and I think that's a great model and something we need, we need to look more you know, at is, is what are the other benefits? Um, you know, we look at things like park and rides for, um, uh, you know, for transportation, you know, will people pay for covered parking spots? And if so, you know, does that help install more solar and then we can charge electric vehicles or charge electric buses at, at those uh, transportation hubs? Um, same thing for apartment complexes. You know, I, I remember living in apartment complexes and constantly, you know, you pay extra for that covered parking. It'd be great. that, And that's, that's just a great dual use. And to me, I, 
really look a lot at how do, how do we better use our assets to generate more revenue. And if you own a parking lot or a building and you can also make energy off of that asset, that's great. And those are the kind of opportunities that we need to be looking for, not just to expand solar, but also so that people can kind of increase their revenue streams, you know, the, between the kind of the 2008 recession and, and now with COVID, um, you know, I think anything we can do to expand, you know, people's economic opportunities um, is, is just a, is a big win. And, you know, if it involves solar, even better. It's really kind of an innovative model that they and CPS have kind of put together on that. And you, you mentioned one other thing in there is you're talking about covered parking and multifamily and such. Do you see community solar getting maybe a, a stronger foothold in multifamily type properties or multifamily type settings? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to come up with the right model, I think, for multifamily. Um, I, I honestly think if you're if you're just looking to get solar on the roofs, um, it's probably better if you can find a way to let that benefit accrue to the property owner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hate to say that, but they're not going to install solar just so that the residents can have a lower electric bill. It's, it's right. too expensive and it takes too much time for them to learn everything they need to learn to do it. So there has to be a financial benefit, I think, for them to, to motivate really the upfront cost of learning what, what they need to learn to do that. Um, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for, uh, you know, to go out and educate uh, those property owners. You know, they, it's, it's a lot of property, it's a lot of rooftop. Um, and, and to try to find those business models, you know, a community solar model rather than say behind the meter model for apartments, I think makes a lot of sense because then the residents of the apartment can benefit from it. Um, but the, uh, apartment, you know, manager themselves can also be a, you know, a business partner and, and receive benefits too. So, so I think there is a, you know, probably a model there. I haven't really seen it done. Time, time will tell. And I'm wondering if there's still some barriers that go beyond the regulatory side to financing community solar projects. Can you talk a little bit about those? Maybe some steps to overcome or what works, what doesn't? Yeah, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on financing. Um, I'm certainly not. And we had some some great researchers working on, on some of the more financial aspects of our research. But, you know, certainly, you know, something that we see is the financing is tricky with community solar because it's hard to capture the tax equity. The projects aren't usually large enough. And we also see that, that with a lot of these projects, the timing can be difficult. You know, you, you get everything set up for community solar. And a lot of times if you can't find an anchor subscriber, it can be difficult to secure the financing. And if you end up with delays because of some of these kind of interconnection things that, uh, that I talked about earlier that, that start to change the financing or the finances of the project, that financing can fall through you know, before you get to completion. So certainly that, that continues to be a, a pain point for the projects. And you know, anything that, that can be done to you know, improve the transparency of, of the costs up front that will help with making the financing aspects uh, go smoother and then finding those anchor subscribers. And, and that's really where businesses in Texas can start to play a role in, in community solar is, is, you know, a lot of times they go with large PPAs, you know, in, in more utility scale type installations, but, but being an anchor subscriber um, actually helps bring down the costs um, and makes uh, community solar more available to say having a, it's easier to say have a carve out for, for um, you know, low and moderate income households um, as, as part of a community solar project if you have a large anchor subscriber. So we're back to education. People need to know more, which is why we're delighted we're having this conversation today. 
one thing that I did want to touch about that you brought up a few minutes ago was uh, COVID. Are you seeing any recent developments in the community solar market due to COVID? Are there changes in perceptions or um, in projects moving forward? I haven't seen anything specific to community solar and COVID. You know, I, I think just in general, though, that we're seeing a lot of economic hardship, and that's making it clear that we need, you know, some more viable ways to relieve energy burdens. Um, so I would say I'm seeing more interest in, in people talking about, you know, energy justice and energy burdens. Um, there is a big report that came out showing that, you know, uh, populations living closer to power plants, uh, the we're suffering more from you know, the lung related aspects of, of, of COVID. And, you know, so I think when we look at, at something like community solar, we see, you know, lower energy bills, cleaner air and, and more local jobs. And that's going to be just this, you know, kind of win, win, win in, in addressing, you know, what, what we've seen, you know, coming out of, of, of this whole situation with the pandemic. And, you know, I think, I think that solar build out really should be a major part of the recovery. I think if it isn't, we're, we're really squandering an opportunity um, because that's the thing with community solar. It really is part of the community. And that means, you know, jobs for the community and benefits for those communities. So I think particularly where communities have been hard hit, that's an excellent thing to consider as part of the economic recovery. Um, and it also provides resilience and community capacity and, and job skills if, if, we can, if we can do it right all of which are good and very much needed in all times. But I think you're right, most especially now, uh, as we look to pursue this energy transition, not only across the country, but here in Texas as well. I wonder here in Texas, if we should start calling it an energy revolution. <laughs> oh, I like that. Would that be more compelling? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mary. And it's been great having you join us today. Um, this has been very insightful information, and I, it's, we've covered a, a variety of topics that I think have really even be expanded beyond the community solar discussion there. And so your input and thoughts on this was great. So we'd like to thank uh, Dr. Arian Beck for joining us today. She's a research fellow in the Energy Systems Transformation Research Group at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Wonderful to, to have you today. And I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. You've been listening to the Energy Crossroads where we discuss the Texas clean energy movement or maybe now the revolution. Visit harkresearch.org or energyhub.harkresearch.org to learn more. Um, and we actually uh, discussed a bit about that energy hub earlier when we were talking about uh, resources that are available for those looking at the solar space as well as energy efficiency space. I'm Gavin Dillingham. Marina Bedouin Criticos is my co-host. The Energy Crossroad podcast is powered by HARC and made in partnership with the Mitchell Foundation and the State Energy Conservation Office. Thank you for listening to Energy Crossroads. We appreciate you joining us today. Check the show notes for the link to the community solar report that was referenced in this episode. So please help spread the word by rating and reviewing the show and then stay tuned for our next episode. Take care. <laughs>